Let me invite you to stand for the scripture reading and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 8. Does your Bible automatically open to Isaiah yet? Have you worn that part of your Bible out? Good. More, more in store. But we're turning to Isaiah 8 in this series, and I'm going to read to you verses 16 through 22, and I really want you to think about this question of how do you live a godly life in a godless culture? How do you stand apart in a godless age? How did Isaiah obey God even though he was surrounded by a culture that was disobedient to God? Part of the answer is here in this passage tied up with the testimony that God has given him. And so we'll look at that this morning. So Isaiah chapter 8 beginning in verse 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Let's pray together. Lord, how we ask for your guidance as we look at what you have spoken so long ago, would you apply it to our lives and give us the wisdom of your spirit that we might respond in ways that glorify you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, back in the day, there was this horrible experience, horrible experience that many of you have been through, and I'll kind of walk you through it if you're part of another generation. Horrible experience called asking for directions. Asking for directions. And it went something like this. First, there was no GPS. Second, you would get lost because you didn't have GPS. And in your moment of vulnerability, supreme vulnerability, you had to humiliate yourself. And there were a lot of, typically this preceded a conversation between spouses on, or an argument about when to stop and ask for directions But nonetheless, sometimes you were so lost, you had to enter into that humiliation and that vulnerability, and you would stop at a gas station, most likely, open the door, fling the door open, everyone would look at you, and you would just call out in the midst of your vulnerability, where is your destination? Where is the shopping mall or wherever you were were going? And typically, someone who was kind of standing with their snacks in the gas station line would kind of you know, laugh at you. And usually you would get some kind of comment like, oh, you are so lost. 
how did you end up here? Because it, typically you would end up in the worst neighborhood when you were lost. And they would eventually give you directions after further humiliating you, and you would be on your way. And, you know, typically I would verify on the way back to the car whether those were the correct directions or not, because you didn't know. You couldn't trust people. And that was how, back in the day, we got directions, and we're all thankful that we have GPS now, and we can spare ourselves that humiliation. But when you think about asking for directions, think about for a moment, you know, where do you take directions in how to live your life? Where did Isaiah take directions? Because there is this feature of Isaiah that his life as a prophet went in a totally different direction than the people around him. The people around him, we've rehearsed previously, as we saw in chapters 1 through 5, really the sin of the people of Israel. And then here you have this prophet that is obeying and walking with God, and clearly he is listening to something else. Something else is directing his life, and it's right there in verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 8. It is the testimony of God. You see, the testimony of God is what directs and empowers Isaiah to live in this supremely countercultural way. And that's true for us too. If we're going to live the life that glorifies God and follows Him, if we're going to live godly lives in a godless age or a godless culture, and what I mean by that is either denying the existence of God or ignoring God. If that's happening all around us, how will our hearts be attuned to the grace of God and our mission to give Him glory in all things. It's going to be about whether we look to the testimony like Isaiah did. So, got a sermon outline in your bulletin about the features of this testimony, and I've got all H's today. I'm sort of making my seminary profs proud and showing my Presbyterian cred here. So the testimony's hope is the first point. In other words, Isaiah's hope, he was able to stay hopeful in a hopeless situation of impending judgment due to Israel's disobedience because that hope is tied to the testimony. So look in verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. And so the idea here is bind it up, seal it, seal the teaching while we should ask, okay, what, what's that teaching? What did I, I miss? And this is a reference to the three times God has previously spoken in this passage. And that's in chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, chapter 8, verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again. And then chapter 8, verse 11, the Lord spoke thus to me. And so what we have in the preceding section is what God has instructed, his testimony, what he has said and Isaiah is saying, you can bind it up, you can seal it. We might say today, take it to the bank, you can count on it. It's not going to change. If you seal something, it's not going to change. And it is among my disciples, in other words, those who are in that position of humility. The word disciples can mean learners. And it is in those position, those in the position of humility in terms of learning and receiving instruction 
for them, this testimony is the source of hope. And you see that source uh, in at, really in verse 17, because Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord. And then at the end of verse 17, I will hope in him. Well, how is he hoping? How is he waiting on God? It's because of the testimony. Now, verse 17 also makes the point that God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. So God is, as it were, turning away because of the disobedience of the people of Israel, which we've gone into in depth. He has turned his face away from them. It's an expression in terms of turning away his favor uh, from the house of Jacob. So even in that kind of situation, that dark situation, Isaiah still waits for the Lord and he has hope in him. Now this waiting for the Lord, the biblical concept is waiting of waiting is different than our concept. Typically we think of waiting is what you do when you're blocked from what you want. So waiting is something that you engage in passively only when you're blocked from what you want to achieve. But the biblical idea of waiting is very different. The biblical idea of waiting is I'm going to rest on and trust in the very character of who God is that even in this moment of doing nothing, God is still at work. Even when I'm not at work, God is at work. That's the idea of waiting. We can rest because God doesn't. And so he is waiting for the Lord. And remember, one of the big questions in Isaiah is who you're going to trust. Will Israel trust in, their, in themselves, in their own means of, of making an alliance to resist the coming invasion of Assyria, or will they trust in God for deliverance? So when Isaiah says, I will wait on the Lord, he is saying, because I know the testimony of God, because I know the character of who God is and what he has spoken, because of all that, I can depend on him. I can wait. And waiting is so hard. We're really in a culture of frenetic uh, activity, aren't we? Frantic and frenetic activity. Uh, don't just stand there, do something. But what Isaiah is saying here is, I can just stand here and do nothing because I'm depending on who God is and how he is at work. So he will wait for the Lord. That's resting on the testimony. But as well, look at the end of verse 17, I will hope in him. He's going to hope in God, even in this despairing culture that he's surrounded with, he is going to hope in God, rest on him, and fix his hope in a, and think of hope as the anticipation of a future good outcome. You can kind of define hope that way. And so Isaiah is hoping in God, resting on him, not his own abilities, not what he can manipulate and make happen, but trusting in God, dependent on him. And it can help when we think of hope. We've got to base hope on something. You can't just have sort of this pulled out of thin air positive uh, disposition. If you have that, we can shoot holes in it all day. Because Things are not. They don't seem hopeful. Without God, there is not hope. 
And recently, uh, Brady and I, my youngest son, we were in an, filming an episode of Bernie Texas Gone Forever. Some of you have, have participated in those episodes without knowing it. You know that reality show, Bernie Texas Gone Forever? And it, it went something like this. We were driving out to Rob's Ranch for the men's time. We had a great time out there in Bandera County, in, or Medina County, excuse me. But we were on the way, and you know, you cross over that bridge on I-10, and you're kind of headed that way west on 46. And a, a SUV pulling a trailer pulled out of that big box retailer uh, there at the corner, pulled out on him. And, you know, we both rolled our eyes, and, you know, something didn't look right. They had just loaded up for the job that was coming, and so this trailer was pretty loaded, and you know how it is. I mean, once there's no opportunity to pass anyone from, from that intersection all the way to uh, Pipe Creek Highway 16. You know, you're just going to be behind who you're ever going to be, be behind. And so, you know, we're behind this, and you, you can tell just this just doesn't look right. Um, and so we turn on to Highway 16, and the passing lane is there, and so Brady pulls into the other lane, and it's just about as soon as he pulls in the other lane to pass, the tire blows on that trailer. And fortunately, I wasn't driving because you know, something bad would happen. But, you know, the tire blows on that trailer that these people are pulling, and tire parts fly everywhere. And fortunately, in this episode of uh, Bernie Texas Gone Forever, no one was hurt, and the person was able to pull to the side of the road. But I tell you that because somewhere, when this trailer was being loaded up, someone must have said, I sure hope that we're not overloading the trailer here. I sure hope this works out. Somebody had that kind of hope, that kind of expression of hope. And, and clearly, as Brady and I kind of did debriefed on this episode as he's learning um, and, and growing as an adult driver, um, you know, we talked about, you know, that just didn't look right. An SUV shouldn't pull a trailer that heavy. He knew something was wrong right away. And then he was able to see that the bobcat loaded up on this trailer wasn't centered. It wasn't loaded correctly. It was sort of off-center, putting all the weight on one side. And we sort of talked about that. And what I'm getting at, why I'm telling you this story, is it isn't enough to just hope it's all going to work out or to have this positive outlook without any kind of grounding in history or the facts. It's just not a substantive hope, and it will not work out. Life will be blown out in some ways. If people have these ungrounded hopes, they're eventually going to run into something that will blow it out. And so my encouragement to you is, is to ground your hope in the testimony. That's what propelled Isaiah forward in hope in his own day. He wasn't grabbing hope off from something else or depending on someone else to provide that hope for him. His hope was grounded in what God had said. His hope was grounded in this testimony. He was able to wait. He was able to hope. 
not in a change of leaders, not in a change of regimes. He was able to hope in God and God alone. And so that's the testimony of hope, and that's my encouragement to you today, that even in sort of depressing, despairing times like we have in 2023, your hope should be fixed on what God has said, and what God has said is directly grounded in who He is, this testimony that we have before us. We call it the Old Testament the Old Testament, part of God's testimony, part of His Word, and the New Testament, part of God's testimony, what He has said. That's where we ground our hope. So not only did Isaiah have this hope that was grounded in the testimony, he also had what we could call a holy resistance. What do I mean by that? I mean, everybody, it seemed, in Israel was going down the road of disobedience, but Isaiah was able to stand apart from that and have this holy resistance. And you see that in verses 18 and 19. In verse 18, he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord have given me are signs and portents in Israel. You know what that is? That is a Joshua 24, 15 reference. As for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. You heard Joshua 24, 15 read early in our worship service, and you heard that declaration, and Isaiah is making a similar declaration here. He's saying, even though the culture in the nation goes the wrong direction, as for me and my household, we're going to follow the Lord. Now, we met, Isaiah had at least two sons and we met those sons earlier in chapter 7, verse 3. Uh, the son's name is Shir Jeshub. It's a Hebrew phrase that means the remnant will return. And so what God was doing is he was communicating through Isaiah's sons. He was communicating in an objective, nonverbal way that he keeps his promises, that a remnant would return. So everywhere Shir Jeshub went, People would, would remember the promise of God that a remnant will return, that though God's judgment would come and it was well-deserved because of the sin of Israel, that a remnant would be preserved by God's grace and mercy. So that's the one son, Shir Jeshub, and the other one has a little bit odder name. It's four Hebrew words smashed together and that's in chapter 8, verse 3. His name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And that was two weeks ago, the sermon there. And it's a phrase that means, uh, let's see, speedy spoil, pray hastens is what that means. Speedy spoil, pray hastens. And it's a statement about the fact that you can run from God, but you can't hide. That the prey will be quick, but the predator, in this case, God, the judge, the just judge, he is faster still. And so what Isaiah is saying, back to chapter 8, verse 18, is these two children are signs of who God is and are part of this testimony that God has given, part of his statement to Israel. He's going to keep his promises. And he is a just judge of whom there is no escape except through his mercy. And so 
I and the children whom the Lord have given me are signs and portents. Portents, we don't use that word frequently in English, but what it means is it is a harbor, uh, a future reference to something impending coming. And so they point to what's impending coming, the judgment of God. Both these sons point towards that. And they are from, verse 18, the Lord of hosts, which we've looked at that name for God, the name, names of God that are used in Isaiah and elsewhere in the scripture communicate about the character of who God is. They're part of his testimony. And we talked about the Lord of hosts in chapter 8, verse 13. This is the commanding army name of God. It's a communication that God has a celestial army at his disposal in order to work his way and his will by force. So from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And there at the end of verse 18, we realize this is part of the fulfillment of that sign of Emmanuel talked about in Isaiah 7, 14. The sign of Emmanuel, God with us. Where is God dwelling? He is with his people on Mount Zion. So again, part of what Isaiah is doing here is he's saying, as for me and my family, we're going to go in the Godward direction, God-glorifying, God-pleasing direction, because God is powerful, he's the Lord of hosts, because he is with his people, dwells on Mount Zion, and that's part of the testimony. And this is in contrast to verse 19, the peer pressure, as it were, that he gets. And the peer pressure comes in the form of those who instruct him and tell him to inquire of the medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. In other words, who do you listen to for advice? Who do you listen to for guidance? Will it be the testimony of God? Or here in his culture, he was being encouraged to consult with mediums and those who consult with the dead. Now, there's a little Isaiah humor here because those two groups, what do they do? They chirp and they mutter. We would say today in English, they moan and they groan, right? And that's in contrast to it's Isaiah humor because he's setting this up. How did God speak in chapter 8? Well, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 8, verse 11. God is speaking clearly. He's not moaning and groaning. He's not chirping and muttering. He is speaking clearly. And you can bind up the testimony, uh, verse 16, of what he has said, depend on it, and trust in it. So do you see that contrast there? And we have no shortage in our own day of prognosticators who chirp and mutter. And we are tempted as it were, to read self-help books, and certainly you can grow in some ways from reading those self-help books, but they're not substantive enough to ground eternal hope in. We can consult with gurus and experts and listen to all manner of podcasts that are out there. There's no shortage of places to look for advice. But what do we read at the End of verse 19, should not a people inquire of their God? 
we're going to look at this more in a couple weeks, but this idea of inquiring of God, we'll look at it again in chapter 9, verse 13, as one of the things that Israel has not done. They haven't asked God for direction or for guidance. And what about us in our own life? Maybe we'll listen to hour after hour of TV or podcasts or advice uh, in our own day, but will we listen to the testimony of the Scripture? Are we attuned to what God has said? Does God's Word have a place of primacy in your life that you go to God's Word and you receive there in His Word the guidance you need to encourage your own holy resistance against the ways of this world. You see, we become, as it were, we're liturgically formed, if you will, by the voices that we're listening to. And so, is God's voice coming through in the testimony of His Word clear? And is that a priority in your life? What absurdity not to consult the God who dwells with them and has power, the Lord of hosts. How absurd not to consult the very one who is Emmanuel dwelling with them. And yet they have failed to do that. And the encouragement for us is that we would listen to him, that we would inquire of him. If you're in a difficult situation in your life, if you're facing a dilemma, we ought to go and inquire of God about it. And then at the end of verse 19, should they inquire the dead on behalf of the living? This is sort of an absurdity, isn't it? How absurd that God's people won't listen to God in his testimony. And the testimony of God is what fuels Isaiah's holy resistance. He's able to live apart from the culture and speak truth back into it because of his dedication to the testimony of what God has said. So, so far what I've shown you is that Isaiah's life was a result of the testimony of God speaking to him, the hope that he had in the holy resistance, and the testimony also has a harsh reality. And that's in verses 20 through 22, this harsh reality. And the harsh reality is seen, look in verse 20, the call to us is to the teaching and to the testimony. Isaiah's calling people back to avoid this harsh reality. The harsh reality, I mean, look how the passage ends in verse 22. They will be thrust into thick darkness. Not ordinary darkness, thick. They're going to be thrust into it by force. The passage doesn't end well for those who ignore the testimony of God. And this is the harsh reality that's spoken, but it's actually spoken as exhibit A for God's love and His mercy for His people. He says, this is where it's going to end up if you don't listen to me. And it is but ours to repent and avail ourselves of his mercy and grace and turn to him. Here in verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony, that is the rally cry of Christians in the play Les Mis. 
that's what I think of when I read this because the cry in the French Revolution to the barricades, to the barricades. And for the Christian, it's not to the barricades. It's not to the wall. It's not let us build ourselves a separate culture and reality. It is to the teaching and to the testimony. By dedication to what God has said, he guides and he leads us to interact with a godless culture in ways that are redemptive. So to the teaching and to the testimony, go back to that. And if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Now this is a reference back to the mediums, to the necromancers, to anyone who is talking in authoritative ways about how to live life. If they will not speak according to this word, they have no dawn, they have no hope. If you're up early, some days like I am, it's a real boost to see the sun coming up. Another day begins, it's hopeful, but that hope is not for those who do not pay attention to the testimony. They have no dawn. And then look in verse 21. This is a reversal of Israel going into the promised land. Remember, God had given them the promised land that they would go into and they would enjoy the benefits of being in a land where they didn't build the cities, where they didn't plant the crops, and they would, they would be fed. But this is a reversal of that. They will pass through, verse 21, the land. They will pass through the land. They will be sent out from the land. This is envisioning the exile that God's going to use to judge Israel. So it's a reversal of the promised land. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. So this is a reversal of the land flowing with milk and honey and this provision. They're not going to have that greatly distressed and hungry, and then what follows is the origin of the word hangry, the, origin, the biblical origin of the word hangry. You didn't know that was a biblical concept. That's when you're hungry and angry at the same time. Look at verse 21, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. So the idea here is, is in this reversal of God's fulfillment of his wonderful promise to give them a land, as he expels them out from the land for their disobedience, they will speak against their own rulers, their king, and in their moments of desolation and deprivation, they'll speak against God. And you see at the end of verse 21, turning their face upward. Now, we need a little interpretation here. You would think this was a pietistic expression, turning your face upward toward God. But actually, you know from the context that can't be the case because they're angry, they're deprived because of their own sin. Turning their face upward is a confrontive type move on God as if to say, come on, God, let's fight it out. Let me rebel against you. That's the turning their face upward. It's the opposite response of what they should have, which is turning their face downward in humility and repentance and a willing submissiveness to God. They're resisting that, turning their face upward. How is this going to go for them? Verse 22, they will look to the earth. In other words, they're going to look for deliverance around them 
And sometimes we do this in our own sin and giving into our own temptations and addictions. We look elsewhere for deliverance. So they're going to look to the earth. Will they find deliverance somewhere else besides God? No. Behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. The ultimate spiritual unhappy ending for those who have rejected the testimony of God. And of course, one of the, one of the features of Isaiah, I need to trademark this term, it's prophetic whiplash. You get prophetic whiplash when you're reading through Isaiah. Why is that? Because you get these desperate, terrible pictures of where you end up if you reject the testimony, and then you get whiplash because you get this sudden picture of hope that happens. And the sudden picture of hope, you got to come back next week to hear that. <laughs> we're, we're ending on the darkness. But just take a peek at chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The hope is coming. You see the whiplash, and that whiplash is meant these visions of hopelessness up against the vision of hope is meant to stir within you that desire for repentance as we cast ourselves on the mercy of God. And you see it as well in verse 2 of chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen what? A great light. A great light equivalent to and overwhelming the thick darkness has come. And for Isaiah, he can only look forward to this. He looks forward to the suffering servant who would come. We're told about him in detail in Isaiah 53. Isaiah has that deliverance through the suffering servant in mind. And of course, we have the clarity of being on the other side of the cross. And today, the weather uh, cooperated with this because what did we have this morning? What did we have this morning? Thick fog, didn't we? Thick fog. And then we sometimes talk to each other and we say, oh, that'll burn off. That'll burn off once the sun came. Sure enough, beautiful day today. And in part, what we remember as we look at the testimony of God is we remember the one who is the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And the Son has risen. He has risen and in power, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is the testimony, burns off the darkness surrounding us and instills and rekindles hope within us. And so now you know something of how Isaiah lived for God in a godless culture. And you know as well how we ought to live. That we live with a hope tethered to the testimony of God. And not only that, we can resist the ways of this world by being uh, receptive of this word of God, this testimony that he has given us. And if we don't, a harsh reality awaits for all those who reject that word, that testimony. Let's pray together. Lord, how we thank you indeed that you have made clear to us the way we should go. And by so doing, we pray that we together as your people would live in ways that are consistent with the testimony that you have given us in your word.
We pray that your testimony would have a place of primacy in our life, that we would be a people who inquire of you and walk with you. And by so doing, we go in a different direction, not just us, but the children whom you have entrusted us with go a different direction than the ways of this world. And by so doing, we give you the honor and glory which you deserve. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.